Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is part two of our analysis, by our I mean mine and Bill Reel's analysis of the devotional given by Brother and Sister Renland at BYU Hawaii from earlier this month, this month being January of 2019. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing exceptional. Really excited uh, to do this. I just I think that uh, part one went really well. Uh, now I'm looking forward to part two, and uh, I think this whole second analogy has got a lot to go into as well. Yes, I wanted to add that part two, we're doing several days after we recorded part one. Today is January 23rd of 2019, and we talked in part one about how the church is more and more addressing the issues of doubt among its members, and how we had never seen this before when we joined the church. This is a very recent phenomenon. And then, as if to make us prophets, what should happen last night, January 22nd, 2019, except another example of the same phenomenon. This was at BYU, Utah, the hotbed of BYU students, when a member of the 70, Elder Corbridge, appeared in front of the student body at BYU for a student devotional and talked on the exact same subject of how to deal with doubts about the church. Yeah, it seems they have picked a new strategy that is now uh, being displayed left and right, which is to reassure the TBM that all that matters is their testimony, what they've felt, to dismiss the questions without really ever addressing any of them, and to try and place some type of diminished perception on the doubter so that the TBM stays as far away from them thinking they have something similar to the plague. Right. So in addition now to Elder Cook and his young single adult fireside from this past summer, we have talks being given on the same subject at all three of the flagship LDS Church colleges. We have Elder Henry J. Eyring from last September at BYU-Idaho. We have uh, Elder Rendlin and Sister Rendlin and their talk from BYU-Hawaii, which we'll continue to analyze here in a second. And now we have Elder Corbridge talking on the same subject at BYU-Utah. And you have facets of this conversation occurring in other places. So while church historian Stephen Harper is much softer about the way he does it, he certainly also shows that The important thing is not to stay focused in these tough questions, but instead to rely on a spiritual testimony. So I I think facets of this are all over, but yes, we've seen enough of these concepts being thrown together in its totality in various talks that you just pointed out to know that the church is now moving in this direction. I wouldn't be surprised, RFM, if we saw two or three more talks in the next two or three months that do the exact same thing that these ones do. We'll see if they approach it at General Conference in more specificity than they have in the past. But I do not think for one second that talks on the same subject within the past several months at all three of the church colleges is a coincidence. I think this is part of an orchestrated attempt to stem the flood of young members leaving the church. And this is the best they've got at this point. We'll see if it works. My guess is no. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of shows their cards a little bit. You and I were talking this morning on the way in that this is not even a, an area the church would 
be willing in any level to go into a decade ago. And so now we're to a point where I think the church senses it's about to hit critical mass, where the doubting members are significant enough in every ward that they begin talking out loud. The only, the only thing that keeps a doubter quiet is the fear uh, that they are alone and that they're going to be cast aside or marginalized even further if they raise their hand and express those. But once you have two, three, four other families in a ward who are also wrestling with these questions, suddenly as you look around the room in Sunday school, you notice that there are other people who are also wondering the same things and you now have a level of confidence in raising your hand. And so these talks seem to recognize that we're getting close to that critical mass and they're doing everything they can to keep the doubter and the TBM from communicating with each other. I agree with you. They would not be talking about the doubts that members are having unless they absolutely had to. Yeah, this is a must. This is a necessity at this point. So one has to wonder if this doesn't work, uh, where do we go from here? I guess time will tell on that, Bill. Are you ready to go back to the uh, Elder Renland devotionals so we can finish our analysis of that? Let's do it. Play the tape. God wants us to have faith so that he can bless us. Faith is the key that unlocks God's mercy. A person needs to decide that he or she wants to have faith and then act in faith before faith can grow. Alma taught, but behold, if ye will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. For faith to grow, one must choose to have faith, and then act on it. One's desire for faith must result in action. In many ways, we express our faith with our feet. This principle is stated in the Book of Mormon Promise that my husband followed as an 11-year-old. And when ye shall have received these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. When you start with the question, could these things not be true? It leads to a beginning of faith that, if nurtured, grows. Could these things not be true is a question that presumes that it's true. For instance, if I say, aren't we going to drive from Honolulu to the North Shore? It presumes we're going to drive. The question urged by Moroni that we ask concerning the Book of Mormon is one motivated by faith and therefore leads to more faith. If we instead start with the question, couldn't these things not be false? It leads to doubt, and doubt never leads to faith. This part of the talk contains one of the elements that I find problematic and more frequently recurring in LDS talks. It's this idea that we choose to have faith. In fact, that's exactly what was said here, that we choose to have faith, that we must choose to have faith. This idea of choosing to have faith has always struck me as rather odd. How do we choose to have faith in something. For example, when I was a kid, I believed in Santa Claus. I did not choose to have faith in Santa Claus. It's simply something that I believed. 
And when the time came when I realized that the evidence against Santa Claus existing was greater than the evidence for Santa Claus existing, I stopped having faith. I didn't choose to not have faith in Santa Claus any more than I had originally chosen to have faith in Santa Claus. Another way of looking at this is, if I could choose to have faith, and then that would result in my having faith, real faith, then theoretically, at this point in my life, I could choose to have faith in Santa Claus again. But I can't. That's not something that is realistic. That's not something that is even possible. So at the outset, I have trouble with this idea that we can choose to have faith. Your thoughts, Bill? So they start off with this, uh, you know, this deciding, as you point out, deciding to have faith. And as you point out, this deciding you want to believe. And again, just to point out, it's a wood tool. If you, if you were to take the perspective of placing yourself in some other religious system and imagine being, again, I, I try to pick these same ones because there's such similarities between them. But if you pick the Jehovah's Witness, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, I can imagine, and there are talks on the record from the leadership of the Jehovah's Witness, where their commentary is along the same lines, that these doubters need to be, uh, we need to be careful of them, be careful of what's on the internet, that you know, we needed to have faith in these last days. But the reality is that doesn't make Jehovah's Witness true any more than this kind of conversation makes Mormonism true. In every faith system, there are people who know the issues and believe. That happens in every system, uh, even the very unhealthy ones. Uh, there's also a ton of believers who are naive to their religious system's deeper history, and they feel good on Sundays. Uh, and that is their motivation for having a testimony that these things are true. And so just deciding to have faith, as you point out, is not only a uh, a trick in some ways. It's it's also a useless tool. It, it works anywhere you go. It's not really able to help you discern which religious system is true, if any of them, and which ones are false. Uh, and so the, the listener to this, if, obviously, as they've listened to maybe other things that you and I have recorded, will recognize that you and I on a consistent basis are pointing out these mechanisms or tricks or these psychological strategies that allow the church and its leaders to constantly deflect away from the real questions, deflect away from where the data is going, and simply ask you, do you feel good about Mormonism? But again, we should sit there and recognize like, oh, but yeah, but don't the Jehovah's Witness, the believing Jehovah's Witness, doesn't he feel good about Jehovah's Witness? Doesn't the uh, believing Scientologist feel good about Scientology? Doesn't the the believing Seventh-day Adventists feel good about Seventh-day Adventists, their faith. So again, this just, it rubs me the wrong way. The idea that faith equals action, I like that idea. So they, they hit on that for a moment, this idea that faith is action. And I agree, like if, if we're going to be measured by something, let's be measured about how we treat each other and how we go out of our way to help each other and to care for each other. But that has very little to do with beliefs. There are atheists who uh, are deeply involved in the service of their community and, and uh, to strengthen the feeble knees and lifting the hands that hang down. Uh, that happens in every religious system. That has very little to do with whether one's beliefs are true, but rather that one has faith in something greater, whatever it is, and has faith in their common, uh, their common relationship with other human beings. Um, and then lastly, they finish kind of with this question, could these things not be true? 
I think sometimes we set ourselves up to believe things by automatically assuming that things are true. So gravity is true. Whether we challenge gravity or whether we simply accept gravity as true, it's there regardless. But if I say like the flying spaghetti monster, I'm just going to ask, could not the flying spaghetti monster be true? That doesn't work because the flying spaghetti monster is either true or he isn't. And we all know he isn't true. It's not real. And yet just by choosing to have faith in that thing doesn't make it so uh, very similar to what you pointed out there with Santa Claus uh, RFM. Yeah. So I want to just mention a little bit more about this choosing to have faith because Terrell Givens goes a little bit more sophisticated on this idea and he brings in this concept called Buridan's ass. You've probably heard him make reference to that bill. Buridan's ass is this theoretical donkey who is equally situated between two equal piles of hay. And the idea behind this, it's not a real donkey or ass that ever existed. It's just a theoretical and philosophical construct. But the idea is that if these piles of hay are equally delicious, and if he is equally distanced between the two of them, then he cannot make a decision as to which one he wants to eat and therefore dies of hunger. That's the concept of Buridan's ass. Of course, as part of that idea, and frankly, it wouldn't even happen in the real world. Of course, uh, a donkey's just going to choose one or the other, right? But that's the idea, is that between these two equally delicious piles of hay, a donkey is going to choose one or the other. And therefore, we have to make a choice as to what we will believe. And the choice that we should be making is that the LDS church is true. So going back now underneath that, that presumes that the two piles of hay are equally large and equally delicious. The problem is, is that the more and more people study the history of the church, they find out that the one pile of hay, which is the church's true pile of hay, begins to diminish more and more and look less and less appealing. And the other pile of hay, which is the church is not true, the church is not what it claims to be, begins to grow and grow and look more and more appealing. And therefore, you get yourself out of this Buridan's ass scenario where the obvious answer and what more and more members of the church are doing and the reason that more and more of these talks are being given is that they're starting to see that the church's true pile of hay is nowhere near as appealing intellectually, rationally, and even morally sometimes as the church is not true pile of hay and they're going to the church is not true pile of hay. When you look at it in that context, there really is no choice to be made. The only rational donkey is going to go to the much bigger pile of hay that looks much more delicious. Yeah, one of them is the cafeteria line at the local state prison, and the other one is the Golden Corral. <laughs> what the church is offering, once you understand the data, uh, is deeply problematic and troublesome uh, in terms of their narrative holding up. Meanwhile, the critic seems like more and more we're figuring out the critic has actually been right on these historical issues for 150 years while the church labeled them anti-Mormon. And now the church is rewriting its own narrative and still doing it, falling deeply short of being forthright and accurate and vulnerable. And as you point out, uh, this donkey, which is you and me, as we look to our left and to our right, one is a feeble, minuscule offering of nourishment, and the other one is a 40-foot-long dinner table stuffed with Thanksgiving dinner and multiple choices for what you'd like to eat on each serving that you get. 
Yeah, the church's true pile of hay ends up more and more representing stale water and crackers. Right, which again, the church seems to have been pretty accurate on that. I know, they're admitting that's all we got for you, stale water and crackers. We've got this little tiny bad pile of hay, but ignore the other pile of hay. Anyway, not to belabor that particular point, one other thing I wanted to mention was her comment about Moroni's promise. Now, I grew up on Moroni's promise. Pretty much every convert to the church grew up on Moroni's promise. And it talks about Moroni at the end of the Book of Mormon saying, I would that you would ask God if these things are not true. And if you ask with a sincere heart, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, etc. But she focuses in on this idea of ask if these things are not true. Now, I like that language from Moroni because there is a defiance to that. There is a certitude on his part that he can actually put the question in the negative sense. I would that you would ask if these things are not true. But notice what Sister Rinland does with that. What she says is this question even though it has the word not in it, presumes that it is true. Now, it's certainly true that Moroni is presuming it is true, right? But what I think she's doing is she's saying, we have to presume that the Book of Mormon is true when we ask whether it is true. So we don't start as an experiment with an unbiased mind. We need to go into it according to the way I'm understanding her with our mind already made up with the presumption that it is true, and then the answer will come back and confirm our presumption. This is what I sometimes call cattle shoot theology. You know what a cattle shoot is, right? My guess is the thing they send the cattle into before they kill them. Well, yes, it is, but it doesn't have to be into the slaughterhouse. It could be into a corral, uh, so it doesn't have to be so overwhelmingly negative. I'm a, I'm a Texas boy from way back. Cattle shoot is there to get cattle from one place into another place without letting the cattle get out. So they're funneled down a chute into the pen, whatever that pen may be. And the idea is one at a time, you focus and force them down this cattle chute to get them where you want to go. And I see this now as a pattern with Sister Rinland. Remember before in part one where we talked about how she doesn't ask, have you come to a knowledge of your Redeemer? She asks her audience, where? Did you come to a knowledge of your Redeemer? Well, that language is used as a cattle shoot. In order to force people into the shoot of, they've already come to a knowledge of their Redeemer. Now we're just asking about the where. Here again, she's doing the same kind of thing. She's not allowing people to ask an open-ended question about whether the Book of Mormon is true. Instead, she quotes the scripture, and then she wants to interpret it as presuming that the Book of Mormon is true. So once again... This is the cattle chute theology where everybody is forced down that cattle chute and the pin that they're supposed to end up in is the church's true pin. And no allowance is made for any of those cattle to get out of there or have any ability to think outside the chute or think outside the box so that the only way that they can go is down the chute and the only place they can end up in is the church's true. Yeah, and I think that she makes a very subtle acknowledgement here that if we, as members of the church, are objective, we're likely not going to end up as believing members of the church. In other words, if the only way to believe is to assume that something is, that only makes sense. So, for instance, again, going back to the flying spaghetti monster, 
We know that's not true. So the only way to believe in a flying spaghetti monster is if you push yourself to assume that a flying spaghetti monster is true. The, the only way to believe that the Earth is flat when you look at the data is to start off with the assumption that you want to believe this crazy thing. Like, I want to believe the world's flat. I'm going to start there. I'm going to, my assumption to begin with is that the earth is flat. And when I make that assumption, it already starts me off on this conclusion, whether that conclusion is true or not, it already gives that conclusion a slight advantage at the beginning. She seems to be indicating that the only way Mormonism holds up or has an advantage uh, in the minds of us members is if we assume that the church is true. If we go into this problem objectively, which is if we go into this problem going, the church may be true, it may not be true. I'm going to look at the data on both sides. I'm going to consider both arguments and everything in between, and I'm going to arrive at a educated, informed decision. Uh, She seems to indicate here that that's going to end with us as non-believers in the church. And the only way we can protect ourselves is that if we start off with the assumption that the church is true and work really hard to stay on that end of things. Yes. And along those lines now, Elder Rendland is going to share the second parable in this presentation. The second parable has to do with church history, whack-a-mole. Let's play the tape. On one occasion, while attending a stake conference, a stake president asked me, to visit with a man whom I'll call Stephen. Stephen had been a faithful member of the church. He'd served a mission and had married in the temple. He'd served faithfully for many years but began to have doubts about the church. As I visited with Stephen, he said that he had concerns about the fact that Joseph Smith related four versions of the first vision. He thought this might mean that Joseph Smith made up his experience. I put Stephen in contact with a man who had researched these four versions decades earlier. Stephen visited with the researcher. The next time I spoke with Stephen, I said, so how do you feel about the first vision? He said, well, I feel okay about that because my questions have been answered. That no longer bothers me. But now I'm really concerned about the polygamy that was practiced in Nauvoo and after the manifesto in 1890. That's really troubling me. I asked Stephen to visit with someone who had researched these topics in reliable primary sources. After that discussion, I contacted Stephen and asked how he was doing. He said, well, that doesn't bother me anymore. I understand what happened, and my concerns have been resolved. But now, I'm really concerned that the priesthood was withheld for a time from those of African descent. Sadly, Stephen had chosen to be a perpetual doubter. For him, doubting pleased him more than knowing, and he was digging up in doubt what he had planted in faith. As time went on, as one concern was resolved, another one was found. No matter how, many, how much anyone tried to respond and answer these questions, he found another topic on which he was anxious. He focused on the dents in the boat instead of on the capability of the boat to lead him to the blessings of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. What Stephen was doing is a form of church history whack-a-mole. You know, the children's game where a mole pops up from a board and as soon as you hit it, another mole pops up in its place. (laughs) 
while further intellectual information may temporarily resolve an intellectual concern, further information is not the complete solution because, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Faith in Jesus Christ and a witness born of the Spirit are also needed. Many who have, who have questions, who have already doubt in their mind, have difficulty finding their spiritual footing. They have nonetheless stayed faithful and have remained on the covenant path. Often, as they have prayed, they have received the answer Elder Neil L. Anderson received decades ago when he wondered whether he was adequately pre- prepared to enter the mission field. As he prayed, the feeling came, you don't know everything, but you know enough. At times, in fact, often, the Lord's answer will be, you know enough to stay on the covenant path and keep my commandments. When Nephi was asked if he knew what the condescension of God was, he said, I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. He knew enough. In this life, we will never know the meaning of all things, but we know enough. Our destinies depend on exercising embryonic faith that will grow as we act in faith. So here we have Stephen. Uh, Stephen is a, a, a name that he picked for this person, not wanting to reveal who this is. Of course, that's convenient because I'd love to ask Stephen if he really felt his answers uh, that he received from Elder Runland uh, regarding the first vision, if they really were sufficient, or if those answers he got later on the other issues were sufficient. But Stephen has a serious question in church history, and Elder Runland, um, being a compassionate special witness of Jesus Christ, sought to get him answers. Stephen then uh, seems to have resolved that issue, but moved on to another issue, and this process happens over and over again, where Stephen gets answers to his questions and then moves on to another problematic issue. Um, I can remember a time, RFM, where I was reaching out to leadership, including Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, and I had such deference for these men that while in my head I continued to struggle, I would articulate to these men that they were um, that their answers were helpful, and in some ways they were. It gave me space to know that my doubts weren't going to be shamed by these guys, and so it gave me more time to work things out. But you almost feel like you can't be direct with these men and tell them exactly why something's working or not working. And so I really do wonder, one, if Stephen's a real person. Second, if Stephen really did convey to Elder Runland that these answers he got in the first vision were sufficient. And and I'd love to, if Stephen was a, a real person, to talk to him today and to see if he still feels like those answers were sufficient, if he felt they were at that time. But there's a more important thing that goes on here, which is that there are people in the church who are deeply hurting over this stuff. And the leadership of the church, through Elder Runland and others, seem to convey that we don't really care Like we could, I've got these great answers on the first vision. I could stop right now in the middle of this conference and I could tell you what this scholar 
what this person who was aware of this issue and the answers they had, I could read their very answers to this crowd and I could resolve this crowd. Anybody in this crowd who has a concern in the first vision, I could resolve that concern. But the leadership of the church seems to not really want to talk about the issues and why they're problematic and what answers they have. They always want to just say, like, look, we've got answers. And it reminds me of a lot of Hans Matson when he goes to the Swedish rescue and Elder uh, L. Tom Perry claims that he's got something in his bag, a book written that has all the answers to all of these issues. And when Hans says, well, great, pull it out and let's you know show us, uh, Elder Perry says, I can't show you that right now. And Hans, to this day, doubts that there was ever anything in that bag. And if there was, it certainly wasn't as uh, clearly a solution to these problems as uh, Elder Perry was trying to portray. And so I simply want to say that Elder Runland here wants to tell the crowd, we have great answers to these questions, but in the midst of people in that crowd losing their faith over those issues, he also knows his answers are so insufficient that he prefers not to actually tell the crowd what those answers are. And he does this over and over, and the church does this over and over. And if you look at any of these issues and you say, like, where is anybody really trying to answer them? I think the church has learned its lesson that when Marlon Jensen and uh, Rick Turley went out to the Swedish rescue, when Stephen Snow, the church historian, has tried to speak on some of these things and address these things with crowds, when Marlon Jensen has gone to firesides and attempted to answer this stuff, when Terrell Givens and Fiona go from city to city putting on their presentations, when Richard Bushman comes on and has a conversation about these issues, when Patrick Mason talks about this stuff, the reality is that while everyone is trying to say, look, hold on, have faith, all of these guys are essentially either admitting or refusing to answer. Uh, they're admitting that these, pro these problems are real, that these facts do lead to distress, and they do lead to questioning the foundational truth claims of the church. Or they refuse to give us the conversations around these issues because they know those answers are insufficient. Again, all roads in this way lead to Rome. Right. And once again, think about how easy it would be if, as the church repeatedly states, the critics of the church are presenting information that are misrepresentations, they're taken out of context, or they're just blatant falsehoods. That is an easy thing to prove wrong. You simply say what it is that they're saying and show how it's a misrepresentation, show how it's taken out of context, show how it's a falsehood, and you have completely diffused the criticism. But they don't do that. And the reason they don't do that is because the problem is that these are not misrepresentations, the criticisms of the church by and large. They're not taken out of context and they're not falsehoods. Instead, we get this second parable about church history whack-a-mole. And that's exactly what Sister Rinland called it, church history whack-a-mole. The first question that came to my mind when I was listening to this was, why is it even possible to play church history whack-a-mole. And the reason is because there are so many problematic issues relating to the church. That's the first thing that I thought of. The second thing I thought of, and here's a number of thoughts in no particular order related to the presentation of this parable by the Renlands. 
First off, this guy named Stephen, he began to have doubts about the church. That's how Elder Renlund puts it. It's like he's walking along the street and all of a sudden, boom, he starts having doubts about the church. Well, the reason he's having doubts about the church is because he's actually studying church history, which we figure out with the first example of the first vision. And Elder Renlund says that he had studied the first vision and he thought that because there were different accounts that Joseph Smith gave, that it may have meant that Joseph Smith made it up. He doesn't talk about the two primary problems with the 1832 account of the first vision, which we've talked about in prior episodes. The two main problems being that Joseph Smith reports seeing only one personage, that being Jesus Christ, in his first recorded account of the first vision. And the second being that in the first account of the first vision, he already knows before he goes into the grove that the true church of Jesus is no longer on the earth and that there's been an apostasy. But he doesn't want to talk about the issue, see. What he wants to do is give all these veiled messages. The first is he refers him to a researcher, okay? So there are people in the church who know all about this stuff, the stuff that he's not actually going to tell his audience about, but who know all about the stuff related to the First Vision accounts, who are still members. And in fact, he even throws in that this researcher had done research and published it decades earlier. So there, there's that implicit thrust that this is stuff that's been known about and published for decades now with the implication that really it's Stephen's fault for not knowing about it before now. This is stuff that's been known and addressed decades ago. And, and then he says that Stephen's concerns were resolved by talking with this researcher. Well, like you say, whether his concerns were resolved or not, we'll never know because we can't talk to Stephen. We don't even know that his first name is Stephen. So then he goes to polygamy. And it's interesting that Elder Renlin says polygamy in Nauvoo. He doesn't say Joseph Smith's polygamy. Joseph Smith's name never gets mentioned here in this talk in relation to polygamy. And he certainly doesn't say that the main problems or issues that people have with regards to Joseph Smith polygamy is that he married approximately 33 women. 11 of them were already married to other men and several of them were teenagers, a couple of them were 14 years old, and that he did most of it behind Emma's back without her knowledge. Those are the problems that most people have with Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy. He doesn't go into that. That's not the point. The point is to say that he referred Stephen to another researcher who was very well versed in the primary sources, and somehow after this meeting, or I would think multiple meetings with this researcher, Stephen now has his concerns resolved about polygamy. Again, we'll never know if that's really true. And please note, please note that Elder Renlund says Stephen had trouble not only with Nauvoo polygamy, but also with post-manifesto polygamy. You know, the polygamy that the church engaged in after 1890 when the church said it wasn't going to engage in polygamy anymore. Well, whenever I hear the phrase post-manifesto polygamy, I can't help but think of D. Michael Quinn, the BYU professor and worker in the church historian's office, who was excommunicated 25 years ago for daring to publish on, wait for it, post-manifesto polygamy. So please, please don't try to tell me that the LDS Church does not try to hide its history from its members. And then he comes up with the priesthood ban. Now, Bill, I've got to mention something here. This whole story sounds just a little bit suspect to me. I don't want to call Elder Renland a liar. I doubt that he's a liar. 
But remember how he introduced this talk. He gets introduced to Stephen, not because Stephen is a friend of his or a son of a friend of his or someone that he would normally have contact with. He is, as a general authority, visiting a stake for state conference. And the stake president of that stake is the one who introduces Elder Renland to Stephen. So this is a meeting that is by chance, and yet he meets with him, refers him to a researcher on the first vision, and then he says, when I next met with Stephen. Well, why is Elder Renland meeting again with Stephen weeks later? Maybe it's because he's such a great guy and he maintained contact with him and he invited him to his office. That's always possible. It just seems sort of odd. And then there's a third meeting with Stephen about the priesthood ban. One other thing here that I want to bring up is that Elder Renland never mentions to his audience that they can find information on these subjects on the church website in the church essays. Now, he never mentions that to them. He never says, if you are having any difficulty with any of these issues like Stephen, I want to tell you there's a resource on the church website that has been approved by the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, and you can go there and that will resolve your concerns. One gets the idea that the reason he doesn't do that is because the purpose of those essays is not necessarily to resolve concerns, or at least if it is, they don't think it's going to do a very good job of resolving those concerns. Finally, (laughs) finally, Sister Renland characterizes this as a children's game, the children's game of whack-a-mole. You remember the children's game of whack-a-mole. So once again, Stephen is acting like a child. She's already done this with a kid who's on the boat in the first parable who talks to the fisherman, says, hey, stop the boat, I want to get off, because he's behaving like a child. In fact, he is in the parable a boy. He is a child. Now Stephen is being likened to a child because he's playing the children's game of whack-a-mole, except this one's church history whack-a-mole. And she also says that he decided to be a perpetual doubter. You see, this is a decision that Stephen made. He didn't make the choice to have faith. Instead, he decided to have doubt. It's not the fact that the more he studies, the more questions he has, the more concerns he has, which has been the path that I have followed. That's been my experience. I think it's been your experience. I think it's been the experience of a growing number of Latter-day Saints. No, this is something that he decided to do. And the reason he decided to do it is in the words of Sister Renlund, because doubting pleased him. See, this is how Stephen gets his jollies. He doubts. That's what makes it fun for him. It's not fun for him to have faith. It's fun for him to doubt. And that's why he keeps having these questions. So you need to decide to have faith. Don't be like Stephen, who plays the children's game of church whack-a-mole. You need to have faith and don't have fun doubting because only people who have fun doubting are the people who raise these questions. If you choose to have faith, you're not going to raise these questions in the first place. So she even says here, RFM, that uh, doubting pleased him more than knowing. Uh, To me, that's insane. So here's Mormonism, which its truth claims uh, depend. They hinge on historical events. I mean, this is probably one of the things that Mormonism on some level regrets having done uh, in its history, which is attach every piece of its foundational theology to a historical event that occurred. These historical events are deeply problematic when they are studied next to 
the historical data and context. So here's Stephen, who, as you point out, he starts to read church history. He starts to encounter an entirely different narrative than what his church taught him. He has serious questions about these issues, uh, and they are they are deeply hurting his attachment, his loyalty, his obedience to the church. So these things that cannot be known, like, for instance, is there a God? Is the Book of Mormon true? Is it true in the sense that the church imposes as a translation of ancient uh, peoples from the Americas who wrote their, their stories down on metal plates and Joseph Smith then translated that into the Book of Mormon? Like, that's an unknowable thing. And this idea that somebody is more pleased with doubt than they are with knowing seems insane to me. Here's another thought I have. You had this idea of perpetual doubter that she mentions, and and then you mentioned that uh, reiterating what she said uh, and showing why that doesn't really hold up well. There's another tangent to this, which is the struggle in the doubter as they're trying to make it work, and yet they're going down the rabbit hole of finding all these problems. The only reason the doubter doesn't easily just let go of Mormonism and just move on with their life is that they emotionally want Mormonism to be true. They want nothing more than to reconcile these issues and to return to faith in this system that they had dedicated their lives to up to this point. In other words, if you can step outside for a moment with all of our judgments that we have, and you can look at Stephen objectively and say, what's going on inside of him? He wants Mormonism to be what it claims to be. And the only reason he's still trying to fight this out and asking Elder Runlin questions and moving from issue to issue is he wants his doubts resolved. He wants to believe again in the church. His motivation is not to to be pleased with doubt more than knowing. He wants nothing more than to know. But the more he reads, he realizes his certainty went from certainty to having extreme doubts about the church. And my guess is eventually Stephen's going to conclude that the church isn't true and hence his need to be emotionally attached to it is not going to be sufficient enough to maintain him. The moment you recognize that people emotionally want things, I want my mom to love me. I want my marriage to be good. I want my children to be successful. And we cling to these ideals and they often have us staying in a thought process or in a loop of thinking, fighting for those things to happen, even at the detriment of our own emotional well-being. I'll give an example. I am an athlete. I came from a family of athletes. I played baseball. I played football. uh, I played pickup basketball. uh, I played golf for the varsity team. I played sports. I love sports. I marry my wife. She's a musician. She plays the saxophone. She's in the marching band. She's in the orchestra. We have four children. I want my children to be athletes to the point where I am pushing to a uh, extreme degree to try to get them interested in sports and playing it. What it caused me to do was to be overbearing as a father uh, at times. And so at some point early on as being a parent, I just threw up my arms and said, this isn't going to work. I'm trying to nudge 
a round peg into a square hole and it's not working. And so I said, look, kids, if you like music, play music. At that point, each of my children ended up playing instruments, joining the choir, being in various bands and orchestras. My children enjoy that. They pick that up from their mom. The moment I let go of this emotional attachment of what I needed my life to look like, I could go where the data took me. For Stephen, he wants the church to be true, but the data is pulling him a different direction. The moment Stephen says, look, my need to follow the truth trumps my emotional need for the church to be what it claimed to be, Stephen will be out of the church faster than you can say Mahanri Moriankamer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. And so really it has to be understood very clearly that at the bottom, this parable once again is given to marginalize those who have doubts about the church. Like you say, having doubts about the church is not something that pleases most members. It's not something that they decide to be a perpetual doubter. This is something that is agonizing and traumatic for most people who go through a faith crisis. That's why it's called a faith crisis. But like you said, at some point for most people, when they come upon challenging and difficult information about the church, they have a decision to make. They can either ignore it, which will just basically put it on the shelf and increase feelings of cognitive dissonance, or they can try and harmonize it with their belief that the church is true. And usually they go through those steps before they get to this crisis or breaking point. And when they get to the breaking point, they have to make a decision. And here I use this decision, right? They have to make a decision. It's not a decision whether to know or a decision to be a doubter. It's a decision whether they are going to be honest with themselves. It's a decision whether they're going to be intellectually honest, spiritually honest, and even morally honest with themselves. It's a question of whether they will have personal integrity, and it's a question of whether they will live their lives with authenticity. Like you said, the church spends so much time teaching its members to follow the truth. The truth will set you free. Truth is the single most important thing. And so after you've taught your members that and inculcated that in their minds, the church should not be too surprised when its members start discovering truth. The truth that the church has tried very, very hard since its inception to keep its members from finding out, by the way, that can't be stressed enough. They find out the truth and then they start following the truth away from the church, even though it's that following the truth that the church taught them from their youth up. Yeah, when I was in middle school, there was a beautiful girl, we'll call her Stephen, and uh, and I I wanted wait 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 I just took a drink okay now that was not fair so I I almost I almost skewed right there okay her name is Steven. yeah we'll just yeah I don't you know I don't want to reveal what her real name was that would be risky so we'll call her Stephen but I I really was attracted to Stephen Stephen was gorgeous beautiful and uh, and I thought like you know I'm just kind of a middle of the road guy I'm a little chubby I've got a little bit of acne as I'm going through puberty you know at some point I thought, you know, maybe I've got a chance with this, Stephen, but it, I, eventually I had to let go of that pipe dream. Uh, and I think that most individuals, as you point out, and as I've pointed out before, most individuals who dive into the rabbit hole that is the history uh, of Mormonism, all, I would, I got to believe, and again, I'm saying this anecdotally, but I've got to believe 95% or more end up outside the church. 
because the mess is too big. The pile of hay on the side of the critic is becoming too massive. And the side of hay on the side of the church, as you point out, becomes more and more diminished. I had to give up that I was the kind of material that Stephen was going to fall in love with. And um, my dream of being married someday to Stephen was just a dream. And so at some point, we all have to let go of the things we want to be true. Uh, and, and, and I guess we don't. I mean, we can cling to it. We can choose to believe in things even if they're not true. But for the for those who are trying to be rational and logical, we have to let go of the things we want to be true and start living our life on the basis of those things that are. Right. And, you know, you could have been crazy. We'd call it crazy and continue to be after Stephen, even after all these years, even after she's gotten married and had kids and whatever, and still be pining away for Stephen and not getting married, not going on with your life, but waiting, waiting, pursuing, pursuing, ending up getting no contact orders against you, violating the no contact orders, getting thrown in jail, charged with crimes, blah, blah, blah. That's what would have happened if you had continued along that pipe dream path. But that does not lead to happiness. Even though in our heads we think, oh, Stephen, got to have Stephen for happiness. Pursuing it when it's not reality does not lead to happiness. It leads to misery. And restraining orders. And restraining orders. Instead, coming to grips with what is reality and then living our lives in accordance with the truth is what brings happiness. Yeah, Stephen was out of my league. (laughs) Okay. Let's roll the tape. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Doubt is not and will never be the precursor of faith any more than light depends on darkness for its creation. Peter wasn't told as he was slipping into the water after having tried to walk on it, Oh, Peter, if only you had more doubt. No, he was told, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? In the lectures on faith, the difference between faith and doubt are explained. Where doubt and uncertainty are, faith is not, nor can it be. For doubt and faith do not exist in the same person at the same time. Persons whose minds are under doubts and fears cannot have unshaken confidence. And where unshaken confidence is not, there faith is weak. And where faith is weak, the persons will not be able to contend against all the opposition tribulations, and afflictions which they will have to encounter in order to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And they will grow weary in their minds, and the adversary will have power over them and destroy them. This is what happened to Stephen. He let doubt and uncertainty occupy his mind. As time went on, he didn't have the strength to confront the challenges that one faces as a member of the church. He grew weary in his mind, and his faith disappeared. Three quick comments about what Elder Renlin has said here, and I'll try and keep it brief. First off, he talks about how faith cannot exist with doubt, that they cannot exist at the same time. And he says that faith does not come out of doubt any more than light comes out of darkness. Well, The thing I want to bring up here is that he seems to be, in a sense, challenging his own scripture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And by that, I mean the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 2, which talks about an opposition in all things. Now, that chapter does not talk about light coming out of darkness. 
It does not talk about faith coming out of doubt, but it does talk about the fact that you have to have the opposites of both things in order for there to be an existence. Otherwise, there is no existence. You have to have light and darkness. You have to have happiness and misery. You have to have faith and doubt. Now, I threw the faith and doubt in there. That's not in the text, but obviously, that is a natural extension of what is being talked about in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11. You have to have both. If, as you say, you can have one without the other, and in fact, if, as you say, you can only have the one without the other, you can only have faith without the doubt. If you have doubt, you don't really have faith. Then it seems to me that you're going into contravention of fundamental LDS doctrine as enunciated in the Book of Mormon. Pressing thought I had here was Joseph Smith's own history. And when I was a new convert to the church, I did not serve a mission, but I went out with the missionaries a lot. And I wanted to be like them. And I wanted to be as prepared as they were to help them with the missionary discussions. So while not having served a mission, I spent a lot of time trying to read and memorize parts of the six discussions that the missionaries gave at that time. One of the things that they did was they read uh, History of the Church. And I hope I get this right because I'm putting myself on the spot right now. But uh, we used to tell members in the discussions this piece of the Joseph Smith history. This is Joseph Smith's own words uh, about his experience. He said, during this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. And though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept myself aloof from the various parties. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. But so great was the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person as young as I and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. Now, that's the prophet Joseph Smith. And I hope I got that fairly close, if not if not a dead ringer. And this was one of the things I, I didn't want to be the third wheel when I went out with the elders to teach. I wanted to look and fit the part. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be just as smooth as I moved from item to item. In that story about Joseph Smith, what Joseph Smith expressed when he says, so great was the confusion and strife and, and this idea of keeping himself apart from these different denominations, these different sects, that's doubt. Joseph Smith had doubts about which church was true. Joseph Smith had doubts about the competing theologies of these various religions. It's his doubts that also is the other side of the coin, which led to him having faith to ask God for an answer. For Elder Runlin to come in and say, hey, doubts and uh, faith are incompatible. For Sister Runlin to come in and say, doubts and faith are incompatible. These two are working against the foundational story of Mormonism, where the prophet Joseph Smith, our founder, had both doubts and faith working together. They were not incompatible. They were two sides of the same coin, which prompted Joseph Smith to act. So when we look at what they're trying to do versus reality, the reality is this. Anytime we have doubt in something, we're also having faith in something else. So if I doubt that Mormonism is true, 
I now begin to exercise faith that there is truth outside of Mormonism. And I begin to go look. And, and you might say like, oh, that's not, as, a, as a believing member, you might say, that's insane. And I would say, no, it's not, because it's the same thing Joseph did. Joseph Smith had doubts that the religions of his day were not true. And hence, he had faith that there was truth outside his religion to find. You see, it's the exact same setup, only I changed which systems we were talking about. So the statement is still holds up. It's true. The moment you realize what Elder Runland and Elder and Sister Runland are trying to do, which is to paint doubt as a bad thing and something that is incompatible with faith, I've already lost respect and they've lost credibility with me because they have essentially thrown in the trash, tossed down the garbage disposal, the founding story of Mormonism. Interesting insight. And the thought that came to me as you were talking about Joseph Smith is that really it seems that doubt leads to action. The Renlins say it's faith that leads to action. Well, really, it seems like doubt leads to action. Faith may lead to action too, but it's been my experience that faith leads more to inaction and complacency. Right. That if you if you have a level of certainty in something, if I am absolutely certain that um, I'm going to pass my math test, then why would I do any more of the studying? Like I could put my book down. I'm 100% sure I'm going to pass this math test with flying colors. I no longer need to practice. I no longer need to uh, rehearse or study or uh, put in my brain these formulas and go over them again and again. Yes. And, and I don't know that I want to use faith the same way, RFM, but I certainly would use certainty this way. The more certain, the more sure we are that we are the right about any given idea, certainly the less likely we are to look for truth outside of that perspective. Right. And as you say, faith and doubt go together. They are twin brothers. They are opposite sides of the same coin. You cannot have faith that the earth is round without simultaneously doubting that the earth is flat. And you cannot have faith that the LDS church is true without simultaneously doubting that other churches are not true. You cannot have faith that the church is true while simultaneously doubting the criticisms against the church. Yeah, as I look around, so that absolutely is true. As I look around at all the people I know who have woken up to the messiness of Mormonism, have deconstructed it, and have stepped away. And at this point, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with hundreds, and I'm uh, on some level anecdotally aware of thousands of these people who message me or who send emails. What I have found is that when I look at the believers— who are certain their system is true, who seem really comfortable uh, in that and are naive to some degree, in some degree, perhaps even intentionally naive because they just know their system works and it and it all is holding up. And then I look at the doubters and what they've gone through. Uh, I'm amazed at the courage and strength. So the Runlands are painting the doubter as in all these negative labels, all these negative stereotypes. And what the reality has been for me is the bravery, the courage to stand up and say, like, this system uh, isn't adding up right. And at the expense of damaging the relationships in my life and at the risk of going through what is termed the dark night of the soul in this anguish, this aloneness, this feeling 
ostracized by your tribe. The people that go through that process are are the people that I sense have the most bravery and courage. I, I think it's not only unhealthy, I think it is um, unethical. I think it is deeply harmful to paint these people as less than when they are the bravest people I know. Good point. My next comment about uh, this these comments from Elder Renlund is his now slipping in the story from the New Testament about Peter unsuccessfully trying to walk on the water. And he mentions that Peter slips under the water and Jesus says something to him like, uh, you have little faith. He didn't say, why didn't you doubt more? And that's kind of a laugh line. But of course, this is a dicey move on Elder Renlund's part because the entire first part of this talk was an extended parable about this little kid who gets saved on a boat and who is supposed to stay on the boat in order to be safe and eventually gets all fed up with how the boat looks and says, I want to get back in the water. I want to get out of the boat, right? That's the main message. I want to get out of the boat when the boat is the only thing that can save him. That's the message of the first parable. But now, unfortunately, Elder Rinland goes to the story from the New Testament where Peter and the apostles are on a boat and they see Jesus walking to him on the water. And Peter says, hey, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come to you. And Peter says, come. So it's at Jesus's direction, at Jesus's direction that Peter gets out of the boat and tries to walk on the water. And the message there for me isn't that Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you dumbass, why did you try and walk on the water? That was stupid. Why didn't you stay in the boat? That's where you were safe. The idea is that he was encouraged by Jesus to get out of the boat and come walk to him on the water. And it was only because of Peter's lack of faith that he could not walk on the water the same as Jesus was. So here we've got two competing ideas in the same talk. First off, stay in the boat. That's where you're safe. And then this reference to the New Testament idea that Jesus wants Peter to leave the boat and come to him. Yeah, it seems like a strange analogy to hint at since the message of Jesus calling Peter out of the boat is a much different message than the Runlands would like to portray, especially with their first analogy, which is despite how dilapidated the dinghy is, which is the institutional church, um, and it's the institutional church in its frailty uh, in some ways. When they point to the crackers in the water being stale, which is the talks that we get in church, and their lack of being as nourishing as we would hope them to be. When they point at the dents and the peeling paint, which is the problematic issues in their history and their narrative. Um, and then they say, stay on the boat, stay here. This is the good ship Zion. And then juxtapose that with Jesus who calls us to get out of the boat. And there's a lot of uh, deep truth in this story in the idea that in some ways this entire chapter, I think it's Matthew, maybe chapter, you said 14, I think, uh, Matthew chapter 14, when you understand this story, it seems to be a story of a faith journey. And when we stay on the boat, we're with the tribe, we're with the other people, uh, but at some point we have to be on our own. We have to try to stand on our own two feet. And Peter calls out to Jesus, you know, Lord, beckon me to come. And Jesus says, you know, come out of the boat, come. And Peter makes the attempt and it's a struggle. It's not when you first step out of the boat, which is the institutional church, uh, it isn't easy. It comes with trials and hardship, but 
regardless, it's still Jesus who calls us out of the boat uh, to stand on our own ground, uh, even if that ground is shaky at first, uh, as we develop faith to, to live in this new world, uh, which is uh, owning our own inner authority and uh, being responsive uh, to a complex and nuanced world. Right. And within the context of this story from the New Testament, the only way to get to Jesus is to leave the boat as impossible as that may seem with the rational mind. We have to leave the boat to get to Jesus. And Peter was not wrong for leaving the boat. He was just not able to have faith enough to walk on the water like Jesus did yet, which is what I get from that story. Now, notice that when you and I talk about this story, and it is from Matthew 14, Bill, it is almost impossible to tell this story without mentioning the word boat, because that's where the apostles are in a boat. That's where Peter is when he calls out to Jesus. Peter leaves the boat and then he starts sinking. So it's almost impossible to tell the story without mentioning the word boat. The reason I bring that up is because Elder Renland manages to do it. When he tells a story, if you go back and listen to it, I think you will hear that he tells his story without mentioning the word boat. And because it's almost impossible to tell this story without mentioning the word boat, and yet Elder Renland manages to tell the story without mentioning the word boat, it leads me to conclude that Elder Renland, at some level, is aware that this story contradicts the first parable that they gave at the beginning of the address. And yet he uses it anyway because I guess the temptation was just too strong. It was too enticing for him to not use this. Yeah. And if Jesus calls us out of the boat RFM, then it's, yeah, you can say like Peter lacked some faith. And so Peter sunk into the water and yes, Jesus had to pick him back up, but that doesn't negate the fact that he was still to get out of the boat. Like um, it, it would not have been better had he stayed in the boat. He wouldn't have learned something. Uh, Jesus beckoned him out of the boat for a reason. Like, let's try this. Let's see if you're ready. Let's see if you can do this. Let's learn something from this experience. This idea of always staying in the boat. I mean, at some point when the boat does hit land, do we get to get out of the boat then? Or do we still need to stay in the boat? Because sometimes I feel like for the doubting member who's worked through most of these issues and is barely hanging on to the church, the boat's already up on land. There's a beautiful world out there. Like, don't be so afraid that something's going to draw you back out into the water. Like, get out of the boat. Walk on the sand. Go grab a banana off the tree. Like, like there's a beautiful world out there. And to be stuck on some boat for the rest of your life while that boat only has stale crackers and water, uh, while that boat only has uh, a limited amount of space, and while the captain of that boat doesn't listen to you and diminishes you at every turn by painting you as a bad guy for having questions, um, man, I, I just I found that once I got off the boat, uh, my world got a whole lot better, not worse. Right. There's an old expression, uh, I think the British have it, that calm harbors make poor sailors. We have to be exposed to these kind of experiences. Now, the really funny thing is that if you combine the first parable with this story from the New Testament, which really Elder Renlund would have been better advised to avoid completely and pretend that it wasn't there, what you have is Jesus walking on the water outside this dinghy with the dents in it and calling to the boy to come to him on the water and the sailor, the captain of the ship, forbidding him from leaving the boat and telling him that if he leaves the boat, then he's going to get eaten by sharks and swallowed up by a storm. That's how poignant the combining of these two stories becomes when you stop and think about it. Yeah, there is a beauty in these two stories being juxtaposed against each other when one has the religious leader's 
of a system saying, stay in the boat, and then the savior of the world calling you to get out. Right, and it couldn't more effectively replicate the New Testament portrayal of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and how they warned all of their members to stay in the boat, to follow all the ordinances, to follow all the commandments, and to not leave the boat to go see this Jesus dude. And even the fellow disciples on the boat were had to have been thinking in their mind, like, don't do it. Don't do it. That's water. You're not going to, you can't walk on water. That's Jesus doing it. That's not you. So you had to think that even the disciples on that boat, uh, on that, on that afternoon were wishing in their head for Peter to never, to never try that. The story goes that it's only Peter who tries it. None of the others even dip their toe in the water and give it a go. Stay on the boat. Well, it looks like this is going to be a multi-part podcast because there is still a lot more to dissect and analyze. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.